Good afternoon, and welcome to the Council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello, and we've got a great, great show today. Um, before I uh, introduce you to my guest and the theme of our show, I just want to thank our sponsor, uh, Remax Alliance. Remax Alliance is the best place if you want to buy a house or if you want to sell a house, go to homesincolorado.com. That's homesincolorado.com. And those people there are the best. I've known them personally, and these guys will help you to get the home that you've always dreamed of. So go to homesincolorado.com. That's Remax Alliance, uh, our sponsor of this show. We are being broadcast all over the world. We are on KUHS Denver, broadcasting the best music, best shows here in Colorado, California, New York, all over the world, and we are so grateful to have you on the show today. We're going in a little different direction today. Um, I'm, one of my things that I'm so fascinated about is the way the mind works. And I've had this passion for psychology for a very long time. And I've always thought to myself, you know, there's so much, we're more than just our thoughts. We're more than just our feelings. We're more than our sinews and our bones and our tissues and all the things that, you know, make up physically and, and uh, chemically and biologically. And the where I knew this was because you know, even though behavioral psychology is interesting and it talks about how to handle our behaviors, how to handle our emotions, but where do dreams come from? Where in the where do they come from? And I re remember as a very young child having these very vivid dreams of this monster figure chasing me in the dark and running and waking up terrified by this monster that was chasing me. And some of these creatures uh, that would show up in my dreams, they, it didn't make sense. They were these mythological creatures and things that were phantoms in the night. And I just couldn't understand where they came from. And these mythological terrain and, and waterfalls and mountains and lakes and, and deserts. And so all these things, where did they come from? I had no context for them. I was just a little kid. And as I grew older... Um, I became so much so interested in understanding what makes people do what they do, what makes us, you know, behave the way we behave, what is underneath us that is driving our nature. And when I got out of the service, I had a lot of, we'll talk some here in a little bit about some of the dreams when I had, was in the service. But afterwards, I was, uh, I, I got into acting and I was studying over at the Stella Adler Academy. And one of the characters that I worked on for a play called What the Butler Saw uh, was a psychiatrist. And as I was doing research into this character, I started becoming aware of, of course, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. And I remember reading while I was doing my research his uh, memories, dreams, and reflections. And I was just fascinated by how he was talking about the things that I had been influenced by or affected by from a very young age. And it all kind of made sense to me. It all kind of made sense on a deep level that that was right, that there was something in our unconscious mind that was bubbling, at, uh, that connected us to everything, that connected us to all the people in the past. You know, people have been dreaming before they were speaking. <laughs> they were dreaming and seeing things in their mind before they were even able to do anything. I mean, this is, this is a universal experience. Everybody on the planet dreams. And why? 
And when he spoke to me these things about what was going on in the unconscious, you know, it reminded me of the things that were, were kind of like my shadow. You know, things, that shadow that I was telling you about earlier in the program of this figure that was chasing me. And it's the shadow, this confrontation with the shadow, this diving into the unconscious that is precipitated by initiating dream. And it, when we confront our shadow, and we're going to be talking more about this in other shows, it's when we confront all those things that are deeply buried within us, all these dark things, the things that we're ashamed of, things that we're not, not uh, you know, we feel guilty about, things that we're, 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 we want to hide from, we want to run from. And it's buried because of guilt or shame or fear, and we just want to lock those demons, we want to lock those monsters there. And they show back up in nightmares and flashbacks. And it was right around this time that I was reading this that I had this dream. And the it was, I call it my initiatory dream into the shadow world. And I was, I was swimming in the ocean. And, I was, and there was all these, all these sharks around me. And I knew I had to get away, but I couldn't tell if I was, which way was to the surface. And so I was in the middle of the ocean. So I chose a direction to go and I dove down instead of going up to the surface. And I was down at the bottom of the ocean and these sharks were coming around to, to devour me. And there was this ring, this hook that was on the bottom of the ocean and I pulled up the hook and there was a hole. It was like a manhole cover and I dove down into that and underneath that was this cave. And I got into that cave and it was all dry. And I looked up and I could see that the water and the sharks were up there. And I reached my left hand to see if I was, what I was seeing was correct. And one of the sharks bit off my hand. And I pulled it back down and my hand grew back together. And so I knew I couldn't go back up that way. So I was walking and I was walking down this corridor and I came upon this inferno. I mean, it was right out of Dante's Inferno. And I was standing before all these fires and these flames, and it was terrifying. I was beating sweat. And all of a sudden, somebody pushed me. And I fell down into this cauldron of fire, and I was going into this pit of lava. And what saved me was this white hook that came right out of the wall, and, and it caught the back of my neck. And I looked up, and what I saw was this huge shadow figure, this giant, like, uh, I guess Chewbacca figure, and he was standing looming and, and, and cackling and, and doing all kinds of you know evil things. And I ended up seeing that there was a landing for me to jump onto, and I jumped onto this landing, and he came bounding down to the bottom, and we ended up having this battle. And there was a sword in the stone that just happened to appear, and I pulled this sword out, and I began fighting this. I mean, he was two or three times taller than I was. And I ended up defeating him. I ended up cutting off his head. And when I held his head, his head turned out to be me. And it was one of the, it, it shocked me out of my dream. I mean, it was like, oh my God, what was that? What, how did that happen? And it was then that I began this whole very lengthy process, years actually, of this confrontation with all these unprocessed, un, uh, integrated aspects of my of my being of my consciousness uh, of my the psychic assimilation of all the contents of of my shadows and it took a long time to be able to do it and i believe that one of the highest moral acts we can do as human beings the highest moral act that we can do as human beings is to own our own shadows and it's not easy 
And especially if you've suffered from PTSD and trauma from various um, reasons, whether it's from the military, whether it's from being a first responder, whether it's from being in abusive relationships or having experienced rape or child abuse or neglect or being a refugee, all these things, those things haunt us in those images. And at some point, we have to assimilate them on a deeper level in order to gain what uh, Jung called, which is, um, you know, individuation. It's the assimilation of all those parts to make ourselves whole again. And these dreams, they show the shadow, but it's the wisdom that's locked in those shadows that helps us to make us who we can possibly be. And it's in those waking moments that we integrate that, that we can feel a lightness about us, a space that opens up, an ability to see the world in a healthier way. And it is in our dreams that we lock into a power, tap into a power that is within us, that has been with it, within us from the dawning of time. And so I thought it was so important for us to explore that today with someone who I know is probably one of the foremost dream experts in the world, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, today on the council, we are going to penetrate into the mysterious world of dreams. My very, very special guest and dear friend, Dr. Tom Werner, is a clinical psychologist and professor, and he's a professional magician and founder of the international organization Magician Without Borders. Um, and since 2002, he's traveled to 37 different countries, 37 countries, and has performed magic for over a million refugees and orphan children. Um, over a million. It's astounding. And Tom has been keeping a dream journal and working with his dreams for the last 45 years. He worked as a uh, professor at Burlington College. Uh, he was teaching courses on Jungian psychology, dreams, creativity, transpersonal psychology, and integrated humanities for over 35 years. And he's a co-author of this amazing book. If you are interested in dreams and the transformative power of dreams, I highly encourage you to pick up this book. It's called The Transformational Power of Dreaming, Discovering the Wishes of the Soul. I've been reading it this whole week. I can't even put it down. I'm reading it till the, the wee mornings of the, or the wee hours of the morning. And it is absolutely fantastic. So let me introduce to you all now my very, very special guest, Dr. Tom Werner. Tom, how are you today? I'm, I'm great. And I'd like to begin, Charlie, by just saying how honored and grateful I am to be on the council. I love the title of your show, The Council. It, it's you and I, but all of the people listening are sitting around this council exploring this uh, amazing uh, topic of dreams, which I hope uh, our discussion about will be um, fun, informative, and hopefully inspirational. So thank you. Oh, well, I thank you. I, I've, been, I've known Tom for some time now. We worked on dreams. I actually did his dream workshops, and we worked intimately together on navigating and diving into this area of the, of the soul if you will. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for what you've given me in the short time that we've known each other. So, 
Uh, could you share, Tom, just a little about your background and how you came to studying and, and becoming so involved in, in dream work? Well, um, as you said, I've had these three professions for over 45 years of being a psychologist, a psychotherapist, working from a Jungian perspective, primarily with dreams. And then I've been a professor of psychology for all those years, teaching the kinds of courses you talked about. And then also a a professional uh, magician. And as you mentioned, 15 years ago, in a way, all three of those paths, the psychologist, the professor, and the magician came together when my wife and I founded uh, Magicians Without Borders. And that's been an amazing thing. And maybe we can talk a bit about that at the end of the show or sometime uh, before the end of the show. so let's just get into it. Let's talk about dreams. <laughs> let's talk about dreams. <clears throat> well, and you know, I find what's so, I mean, when you're, when you're thinking about dreams, one of the things is, is, is what's, what is it? You know, where do these dreams come from? You know, if I, like I said early on in the show, I mean, it was these things that just kind of came from nowhere. They seem to have their own organic, um, you know, self-initiating order. There was a process. There, it was. It's not like I had any control over what was happening. It was something that was going on with me. And, and a lot of times they were compensations for what was going on in my life. A lot of times it was things that were I was afraid of, especially when I was a child. So, you know, I guess the best place to begin is, um, you know, what what is a dream? Well, uh, I mean, that's the... Uh the whole program, but in some ways, uh, let's just say a dream is a absolutely natural, uh, spontaneous um, flowering of the human psyche. We don't really know why um, human beings over these hundreds of thousands, millions of years uh, evolved to do this amazing thing, which all of us do. Mm -hmm. Whether we want to or not, every night, whether we remember it or not, the average person, and we know this from the tens of thousands of people who have slept in dream labs and people have uh, monitored their sleep and dreams, that uh, the average person dreams 134 minutes a night. I mean, that's longer than a major motion picture. And maybe we could um, begin by just talking about something that even people who know about dreams oftentimes don't know too much about, and that is what goes on in the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we know, and you mentioned about the psychology and the shadow and all those kinds of things. We can get into that. But first of all, um, dreams occur in an extraordinarily rhythmic cycle of 90 minutes. So you fall asleep and roughly 85 minutes later or so, you emerge into what's called REM sleep, rapid eye movement, paradoxical sleep. And they call it paradoxical sleep because on an EEG machine measuring brain waves, it looks like you're wide awake. I mean, 
really awake, mm. which is kind of interesting. The, the Egyptians, as I understand it, their ancient word for dreaming, and this is so cool, was that time in which we're most awake. Mm. It's kind of a wonderful thing. Um, so during that time, we have a five to seven minute dream. So that makes up 90 minutes. And then we fall asleep and another 90 minute cycle goes by. But that cycle is a little less sleep and more dreaming. So we might have a 15 minute, 20 minute dream. And then the next cycle, more dream and less sleep until the last cycle is roughly 45 minutes of dreaming and 45 minutes of just non-dream sleep. Something we know about um, through, um, and uh, my teacher, my great teacher that the book is dedicated to, and my co-author's teacher, Stanley Krippner, uh, kind of the elder statesman in many ways of dream work in the United States at the moment, um, he did some work which he ended up stopping because it was such difficult research um, in terms of what it did to the dream the subjects he deprived them of their dreams he did this um and when they would start dreaming when the eg machine showed that they were dreaming he interrupted their sleep and prevented them from dreaming other people he let them dream and then he woke them up mm -hmm. those who were deprived of their dreams within three days if they had walked into an emergency room they would have been diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic wow. that they were totally ranged and out of their mind and so as the great psychologist mick jagger says <laughs> in song ruby tuesday if you lose your dreams you lose your mind and then they were allowed to sleep again and they came back to normality once they were allowed to dream so mm. dreams are not only natural spontaneous for some reason both physically and psychologically, and I think spiritually, they're absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't get along without them. Again, the mystery is whether we remember them or not. Mm -hmm. They are doing something profound for us. Another simple uh, thing on the physical level that I'd like to mention, it was research done by a wonderful psychologist who has one of those names that is like his profession. His name is William Dement, uh, a psychologist, and he did something. He put an IV in people's arms, a reverse IV, where he drew blood all night. He took a little bit just before they went to sleep and a little bit just before they started dreaming, 85 minutes or so later, and then after they finished dreaming, five minutes later, and then throughout the night before and after dreams all night. And he found out that the blood level say sample one and two when they were falling asleep and just before dreaming no change in toxicity level in the blood after five mm. minutes of dreaming the toxins drop no no change after the dream and before the next dream but during the dream we detoxify ourselves which is really beautiful uh, because i think we're detoxifying ourselves psychologically and spiritually as well as physically one other amazing thing 
that we can hear metaphorically, but it's also literal, is that growth hormones are secreted during the dream state. So babies have to sleep. Babies have to sleep 18 hours a day so they can dream. What they're dreaming about? Oh my! They even dream in the in the in the womb. Yeah. Fetuses dream. They have rapid eye movement. What are they dreaming about? The other world they just came from, the one they're going to, this swimming pool that they're living in at the moment. This incredible amniotic fluid. So, and teenagers need to sleep a lot because mm-hmm. they're dreaming so much, and they need to secrete growth hormones, and they're also dying and being reborn into mm-hmm. new people and we can talk about that level of dreaming so there's a chapter in the book called the dreaming brain and i just gave you like a, just a smidge <laughs> of, of some of the information that's in that chapter alone on the physiology of dreaming so anyhow well it's we, you know it's such an important thing <clears throat> you know we're dreaming all the time and it's just part like you like you said i mean there's a there's a detoxification there's an assimilation there's a processing of the things that are going on in our lives that can really help us to you know pinpoint things in areas of of uh, of things that are really trying to be um, compensated for in a life that you know can be very stressful at times i mean a lot of the anxiety and the stress that we have in our life uh, in our dreamland, in our dream world, is when we're we're trying to process and make sense of those yes. things. Let me just say one thing: what you said, we're dreaming all the time. Yeah. You know what's interesting? Endocrinologists have shown that this ninety-minute cycle does not just happen during sleep; it's happening twenty-four hours a day. So you go to work mm-hmm. in lots of workplaces at nine o'clock, ten thirty. Ninety minutes later is the coffee break. You know, 12 o'clock, the lunch break, 3 o'clock. That our, and unfortunately, I think um, that instead of going to the cafeteria or pulling out your thermos and having a, a, a shot of crank, and <laughs> that maybe you should go and sit and meditate or go inside. The body seems to be inviting us inside, but we live in such a manic extroverted culture mm-hmm. that we just you know do something like drink coffee to keep us more productive and more up and awake and all of that stuff and yet the body seems to be inviting us every 90 minutes to stop and just pause you know? but we've gotten out of those rhythms yes we have and it, and it's uh, and to our detriment i think i mean we were not being able to you know, get those messages that that come into us that help us to you know organize, to spurn our creativity, to um, yes. give us brand new ideas. I mean, there's so many people throughout history that have had uh, breakthroughs that have come to them through their dreams. Uh, you know, Dante Alighieri in his book uh, the, the uh, Divine Comedy. I mean, that was come through as a, through his dreams. That was how he yeah. saw the Inferno and the Purgatorio and the Paradiso. Uh, Shakespeare, he, he talks about dreams all the time, and his Midsummer Night's Dream is a dream within a dream, and 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 they were always getting all this inspiration 
that allowed them to, you know, express their soul in a way that uh, that we've benefited today, um, you know, in our in our present culture. And even Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein, his theory of relativity came to him in a dream. It wasn't him thinking about formulas or thinking about, um, you know, numbers or math. It was his imagination that allowed him to see things differently that gave him the inspiration. I think in the book you say perspiration, inspiration, and perspiration seems to be the model that dreams can be used in order to uh, bring that creativity that our dreams are trying to tell us uh, to bring into our lives. It seems that when uh, we fall asleep, and that phrase or that idea of falling asleep, shows up in lots of languages no matter what the that we fall asleep and part of what happens and i like to think there's something that happens that everybody's familiar with as you're falling asleep there's something that uh, physiologists call an autoclonic jerk like you you wake up and mm-hmm. then you fall back and then you wake up you know and and i like to think of that whether this is you know true on a physical level or not and I think it might be it's like the ego is resisting giving up control mm-hmm. and falling but once you let go of that controlling part of ourselves we drop into a place um, in the dream world and even I mean we're thinking and pondering all night I mean we visually do it during the dream state but if you wake someone up all night they're usually turning something over in their mind Mm -hmm. and I think once the ego is kind of let go of for this time while we're sleeping we're open to other ways of seeing things Mm -hmm. so on a very simple mundane kind of not mundane to a lot of people but um, Arnold Palmer was in a slump in his golf career, you know, his extraordinary golf career. He went to sleep and had a dream of a golf club. He was gripping a golf club in a certain way. And he woke up and he had an engineer friend and that engineer had him take a, a, a golf club and put clay around it and he found that grip. And he designed a club that exactly matched his kinesthetic experience Mm. from the dream he started using that club came out of his uh slump in his career and went on using that club the rest of his life he dreamt that up you know the sewing machine um how had he was working and working and working on the sewing machine but he was thinking of the needle in the sewing machine the way his ego thought about it from his waking world, that the hole in the needle is at the top of the needle, not at the point. Mm-hmm. But when you design, and then he went to sleep, he fell asleep, he was working, 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 what you said about perspiration. He was working and working in his laboratory trying to solve the problem of what we now call the bobbin that creates a sewing machine and catches the thread and makes the knot. You can't have a bobbin if the top, if the hole is at the top of the pin. So he finds himself at a um, jousting match in the medieval times. Mm-hmm. And they're all getting ready to start jousting and they lower their lances and he sees sunlight shining through the tip of all their lances. There's a hole 
in their lands. And he wakes up and he says, oh, my God, the hole needs to be in the eye at the tip of the needle. The eye has to be. So he drilled that and solved the problem. But it was totally unlike any waking needle in in the existence. Mm. But he, Kukle, who was trying to solve the puzzle of the structure of the benzene ring, Mm. he was working and working and he had a linear model of it. And And the math is not working out. And again, he falls asleep in his laboratory and he looks down and a snake is crawling across the floor of his laboratory. The snake stops, his tail lifts up, his mouth lifts up, and he takes his mouth, his tail in his mouth and forms a perfect circle on the floor of his laboratory. And Kukule, the great German chemist, wakes up from his dream and says, oh my God, the benzene molecule is not linear, it's a circle. So he came up with the benzene ring that we call these days. And these, another extraordinary example, and, and I'll end with this, is how many artists have um, come up with their works. Now, we, we, uh, no one is surprised who knows the films of Federico Fellini or Ingmar Bergman. They kept detailed dream journals, and many of the scenes from their films are right out of their dreams. Um, uh, Bergman says his gorgeous poetic film, The Virgin Spring, was almost an exact transcript of, of his dream. Robert Louis Stevenson, sound asleep. He wakes up. He wakes his wife up. He said, I just had this amazing dream. This doctor in this town who's respected as a great healer and everyone loves him. But at night, he turns into this other person, you know, some hidden part of himself who he ended up calling Mr. Hyde, uh, the hidden part of himself. And he tells his wife the whole plot of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as his dream. He falls back asleep. His wife, thank God, had the presence of mind to write this amazing dream down. At breakfast the next morning, she says, Bob, or whatever she called him, she said uh, to Robert Louis Stevenson, do you remember that dream you told me last night? He said, what dream? She said, this dream. And she read him the plot of Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He went to his study and started (laughs) writing the book. There's hundreds of examples. Many of them are in the book. That is so amazing. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, you know, when you hear stories where like this, where does it come from? <laughs> exactly, where does this stuff come from, and how does it come? I mean, it is. Just, I mean, it's like, and everybody has access to it. It's not like just these these brilliant minds and these people that we know f- throughout history and who left us these beautiful artworks has the the access to this this uh, inner wisdom or this oracle within there it's yeah. not it's not just limited to those people everybody has it everybody can tap into it if you know how to do it and we're going to make a brief quick announcement you are listening to kuhsdenver.com that's kuhsdenver.com you're listening to the council we are broadcasting live not over all through colorado but uh, throughout the world we are being listened to from people from Italy, the United Kingdom, the United States, Cameroon, thank you so much for tuning in. 
um, Spain, Tunisia, Brazil, Latvia, Turkey, the Netherlands. Thank you, thank you, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, without you, the, the council wouldn't be uh, possible. And we are turning this into uh, the council for the world and here to share ideas, to share you know, dreams, to share our dreams. To, uh, it was von Goethe who says, dream no small dream, for they have no power to move the hearts of men. And so well, here we are to take the, the, these ideas and these philosophies and these understandings and these psychologies and to share it with the world and these, and these spiritualities to unite us in a way that helps us to reduce and, and hopefully one day eliminate the collective shadow with the collective trauma that affects all of us. One of the things that I think is so important before we go into um, the Abaton and the dream uh, healing that is when you're when you're actually doing the process of healing is I really want people to be able to understand how they can use their dreams, how they can um, be able to to do it on their own to get the messages for themselves so that, you know, when they're dreaming and all of a sudden they wake up from a dream and they're like, oh, OK, I just had a dream. How just a very simple process and being able to extract the messages. One of the things that we've worked on together is a very simple four-step process. I think it comes from Robert Johnston's work, um, inner work. <clears throat> and it is to, well, first thing is to write down the dream, even if it's just in fragments, even if it's just something that's small that you can, that's still training yourself to remember it. Uh, you write it down, then you start writing associations to the specific images because the unconscious talks to us in images, it talks to us uh, it, it, through those 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 flashes that help us, and, and it's symbolic in nature. And so you write down the associations connected to that, and then you link it to the dynamic of what's going on in your life at this time. You know, what kind of if you're seeing a, a dark shadowed figure, what's going on? You know, what is this representing to you? What's going on in your life? And, and then once you start making all those different dynamic associations, then you make an interpretation. And it's got to be your interpretation. Uh, dreams speak the truth. As long, if you understand that, if your mind is wise enough and your mind is, is supple enough and open to it, it will tell you the truth of what's going on in your life. And then when you write the interpretation, it's your interpretation. It's not some book's interpretation. Um, it's because it's got to be associated and, and, and important to you. And then after that, there's a ritual that needs to be done in order to make that what's unconscious conscious. That's the idea, because whatever lives in the unconscious mind has control over us until we make it conscious. And then we get to do something with it. And that ritual brings that dream alive. It, it gives it, uh, I don't know, Tom, what would you say? It gives it some sense of, um, I guess. Well, you used, you used a word before. I mean, in some ways, um you know, as you just said, it has power over us. And once we make it conscious, that now is adds to our personal power, you know, and we're more conscious in our life. But when you said before, very beautifully, you know, that we have this inner oracle of wisdom and guidance and healing and creativity. Um, but in some ways, as I said in the beginning, it's going to do some work for us, whether we remember the dreams or not. But it can become so much more powerful, interesting, um, just as we were saying, add to our own increased consciousness if we remember the dreams. Let's just talk just for a second about, because I run into, I'd say, 
seven out of ten people say, I don't dream. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, dream. They'd be be loony if they didn't dream. But they don't remember dreams. And why don't they remember their dreams? Uh, And how can they remember their dreams? They primarily don't remember their dreams. You and I were taught. And uh, why are dreams so devalued? you know, in our world. And I think it's because for the last four or 500 years since this great scientific revolution that in many ways we're still in, in the grip of is, has devalued anything that's not rational. And dreams in some ways um, are non-rational. You know, they're not irrational. But anything non-rational is considered irrational or crazy or useless or just a a mini psychosis at one point, a psychologist referred to dreams. Um, So the most important um, element in remembering a dream is to care about them and to be motivated to learn them. And the way to do that is to put a pad very concretely, put a pad beside your bed with a pen and give yourself some pre-sleep suggestion. You know, in the morning, I'll remember my dreams. And I also have to say and write them down because as all of us know, we'll be in the middle of a dream that's unforgettable. And this is one of the great mysteries of dreams. We are in the grip of some extraordinary dream. We wake up, if we don't write it down, within 10 seconds, it is gone. Mm. That's an amazing mystery in itself. Mm. It'd be like you're having this conversation, it stops, and I can't remember that this happened at all. Our interview here on the council, but that happens every morning to a lot of people. So you need to, uh, as the great poet Rumi says, the breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. People are moving back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is wide and open. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Mm-hmm. Don't go back to sleep. So if we have that discipline, and it is a spiritual practice in the beginning, like any art, we have to work at it. And you may not remember a dream that first morning. But as you said earlier, whatever you remember, even if it's just a fragment, write it down. So much, and we talk about this in the book, so much can be done with just an image. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and we could, and, and write it down. And then think about it. If you have someone like my wife and I, two or three times a week, we'll tell each other a dream. You know? and, and if you have somebody to tell it to, it's amazing what another person can hear in your dream that you can't hear, even though. Can I just tell a dream about uh, from one of my patients that's like a really, really wonderful practical teaching dream and one of the things it teaches is how you can how many dreams are talking to us on different levels at the same time this woman comes in sits down 
I said, have you had any dreams this week? She said, yeah, I had a, a little dream. She said, actually, it was pretty scary, but it wasn't very big. She said, I'm going along Route 84, and I take an exit, the Sigourney Street exit, anybody in Hartford who's listening to this. She takes the Sigourney Street exit and comes down, and it is a T at the bottom and a traffic light and all this traffic going along Sigourney Street. And she says, as I'm going down the exit, I put on my brakes to stop at the traffic light and I have no brakes and I'm completely out of control and I'm screaming into this uh, intersection and I wake up, heart racing. So my first uh, response to her was, um, have you had your brakes checked lately? And she laughs and she said, well, um, my brakes, I think, are fine, but um, actually I'm having my car inspected next week, so I'll have them checked. I said, well, please check them. Who knows? You know, dreams care about you on all levels. Mm -hmm. And then um, she said, I was just going so fast and so out of control um, that I was terrified and I woke up. So I said to her then, after the comment about uh, have you had your brakes checked, I said, what's your association, as you said, with that four-step process? What, what's your association with that exit? And she said, that's where I go to visit my new boyfriend, uh, John. It was a relatively new relationship, three or four months or so. And I said, well, how's that relationship going? And totally unconsciously, she says to me, she says, you know, I think it's going too fast and it feels like it's a little out of control and it makes no connection to her dream whatsoever when she makes that comment. <laughs> and she says, that's something I do in my relationships. You know, I go too fast um, and uh, then it feels like it's out of control and the guy starts panicking that I'm going to want to marry him right now. And, um, and then he backs away and the relationship crashes. Mm -hmm. And so we started talking about this feeling that she was having about being out of control and going too fast in the relationship. And she says, you know, that's how I was feeling in the, in the car trying to go off that exit. I just feel out of control. So we talked a bit about that relationship and this pattern in her life and the session ends and she goes off. She comes back the next week with this funny little look on her face. And I said, what are you smiling about? She said, I had no brake pads whatsoever. It was just metal on metal. Yeah. And she's, um, so she said, I needed brakes. And we started. And so I, she said to me, how did I know that? And she thought this was some big psychic dream. I said, it's not necessarily a psychic dream. I said, you're, you're in highway hypnosis or you're thinking about John or you're thinking about work, but your foot isn't thinking about that. You know, it puts its foot on the brake and it feels that metal against metal, even though you don't. It picks up that information. And the way that I think about it and you as an actor, uh, might appreciate this. I think I imagine this um, group of what they call story editors, right, in Hollywood. And they're sitting around the table coming up with a script right, for the right. dream. And now we're in sleep. We haven't gotten to REM sleep yet. And, 
and they're talking about uh, this woman, uh, Carol, and says, um, you know, in the very practical, probably the guy on the story editor committee says, you know, we got to talk to her about her damn brakes, you know. (laughs) If she doesn't get her brakes fixed, I don't care about all this psychic stuff or her religion. She's going to be dead. Right. Okay, so the editor, the uh, secretary's writing down, we got to talk about her breaks. And then probably the woman on the committee says, you know, in the story, we ought to have something about her relationship with John because yeah. she's doing the same old thing in this relationship. And the timekeeper saying, we're getting close to, to REM sleep. we got to come up with a story. And, <laughs> and the creative person on the committee says, how about if we do this? We'll have her going along Route 84 and exit at John's exit. And she'll go to put on her brakes. And the guy says, great idea. Put on her brakes and the brakes don't work. And we'll make her feel the way she feels in her relationship with John caused by her brakes. And so they're writing this down. They come up with a story and bam, they drop it into the into the psyche and it starts unreeling. And there's this dream, you know, Mm -hmm. that this amazingly creative part of ourself talks about her dreams, talks about her relationship with John, talks about this lifelong pattern that Mm -hmm. she and I ended up talking about for months, you know, her relationship. And her final dream, we had done, this was so beautiful. We were were in what's called the termination phase of therapy, you know, Mm -hmm. and but neither of us really wanted it to end. You know, we were, had become really good friends and we had this wonderful, but we knew the work had been done. Mm-hmm. And she comes in and um, she says, you know, I had a dream. I said, well, what was it? She said, I'm working, I'm putting the final touches on my motorcycle that I built by scratch, piece by piece. And it's sitting in my garage the garage door is open. I'm polishing the gas tank and polishing the light. I know every part of that machine. And I I start it up and I kick it off the kickstand and I go rolling down the road. And I know if anything happens, I'll know how to fix this machine I've been working on for months and months. And she says, that's how I feel about... Uh, myself at the moment like i now know about myself and i've rebuilt myself piece by piece and i and and i said carol i think that's the final dream now and we (laughs) end you know it was fantastic well and tom i mean i i think it's our dreams psychically tell us when we've like you said in your with your with your the person who was you were working with it reconstructs our psyche. It reconstructs our, our our ability to function in the world. One of the things that I did in my experience with my own dreams is I went you know, into uh, into Greece uh, and did uh, Abaton work, which was dream healing work. We were we would engage in the process of going into um, the ancient Escalapian tradition of dream healing and going into preparing our mind, preparing ourselves for this healing dream. And I was a skeptic, and I wasn't someone who was, you know, does this stuff really work? I was still kind of caught up into the this, you know, very rational materialism, this idea that, <clears throat> you know, those these things don't work. And I was traveling with in Greece and coming up into the time when I was going into this incubation period. And... 
All of a sudden, all the nightmares that I had about the apocalyptic destruction that from the nuclear war that was going to happen, that I was a, that I was a participant and a di direct contributor to, all of a sudden they came up. I mean, it was like dreams that I hadn't remembered in years suddenly were bubbling up to the surface, and I had these dreams repeat the uh, two nights before I actually went into this this questioning, this this drawing and seeding of the dream. And when I went into this period of asking for a healing dream, um, you know, it was the, my ego was very resistant to it. It was fighting it. It was, it was battling. I wasn't sleeping. I was sweating. And finally, at the very end, I had this dream, this incredible dream, where I was uh, a snake came up and bit me on my heart, and it was sucking the venom out, the poison that was in my heart. And, and the snake is a very symbolic for Esculapius and, and uh, his part of the, the healing tradition. And one of the last images of the dream was uh, that he wanted me to see the two, two different gods. And one of them was Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and the other one was Ares, the god of war. And it was my job to take the sword. I came, I went to Ares and took the sword away from him and put an olive branch of peace in his hand and said, I'll take care of this for you now. And what happened afterwards, all that stuff that I had carried on in the service and in the military suddenly got, I, I was a different person. It's not like, I mean, I woke up back into the ordinary world and, and things hadn't changed, but I had changed. And I, and I soon discovered the immense power that dreams can have. And I know you've had some, a similar experience with another veteran as well. And if you could briefly yeah. talk about that, because we've only got about six minutes left, and I want to be able to make sure that we talk about Magicians Without Borders before we go off the road. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what you were describing is, is called dream incubation. And after we develop a relationship with our dreams and we start remembering them and we develop this... Um, sense that uh, we have a, a place inside of us that can give us wisdom and guidance and healing. We can then, as we fall asleep, something's going on in our life and we're stuck in a certain way or we're having trouble in a certain way. We ask our dream source inside of us for a dream to give us a guiding image to help us. And so we actually speak to the dream source and it will enter and we write that down and we have what james hillman my great teacher called psychological faith mm -hmm. we have faith in the psyche that even this dream that doesn't seem necessarily related is an answer to my question and it so often is my wife and i conduct these week-long dream retreats and on our property we have a small hut a beautiful little hut that a student of dreams built for me uh, as a thank you. And uh, during the dream retreat, every night someone sleeps in that dream incubation house and incubates a dream. Uh, and they spend all day working on a dream incubation question and then they pose that to their dreams and we work with the people that night and we process through the dark out to the hut and they sleep in there. The Almost the night before the last night of the dream, a vet who was probably one of the most scarred vets I've ever met in my life. He was a sniper for, for the Marine Corps. So he saw in his scope every person he killed and he saw them every night. And he used to 
not sleep in a bed anymore. He used to just sleep by the door with a gun protecting his, his girlfriend. And he, he just, sleep was terrifying for him. So he said, I'm going to go into the dream hut tonight and sleep in the dream bed. And I said, okay. So he worked all day preparing himself. We processed him in there. I brought him into the dream hut and kissed him like on the forehead, like I would a son, you know. And, and I, he said to me, this tough guy who had six deployments, um, he said, I'm going to do the best job I can do. I'm going to have the best dream I can have. And I said, you'll do just fine, Kevin. So he fell asleep. The next morning, he tells a dream tells two dreams. The first dream is he's strapped down in a bed in the VA hospital. And his grandmother, this great woman who raised him as his real mother, uh, uh, came in and she had a K-bar, uh, his knife that he carried during all his deployments. And she's coming over to him and he thinks she's going to kill him. Mm-hmm. And he's tied down with these leather restraints and she raises the knife up and brings it down and cuts the restraints and she says you're free you can leave and that was the end of the first dream the second dream he shows up at the college where he was in one of my classes and there's a whole group of people out on the lawn and they're looking up at the building and it's on fire and being a great kind of heroic kind of fella he runs and they say there's a a llama, a Tibetan Buddhist llama, inside, trapped in the flames. So he said, I'll go rescue him. He goes running in, and he goes down, and there's the llama sitting there, and he's burning, and um, the llama says, why are you here? And he says, I'm here to save you. And the llama says to him, then I can't go with you. And he said, what? And he turns around and walks away and he gets about 20 pages down the corridor and he comes back and the Lama says to him, why are you here? And he says, I'm here to save myself. And he picks the Lama up who's all burned and hurt and carries him through the flames out to the front and lays him down on the grass outside. And in front of his eyes, the Lama heals and the dream ends. And he ended up over the next year, us working together, um, actually enacting that sense of new freedom Mm. from the restraints that he had been living under and healing and feeding and nurturing this inner healer, this Lama inside of him who had just tremendous guidance. And, And he said, you know, I can't think of anything specific that changed because of that dream incubation. He said, but everything changed. Mm. He said, now mm. there's all this space between me. And my uh, my girlfriend now says, you're so much freer and easier to be with. Anyhow, there's a lot more to say about that. But um, if, they, if the folks, if you want to know more about dream incubation, there's wonderful stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And there's also good stuff in the book, an entire chapter on how you can do mm. this in your life. Well, we're going to have uh, another show just specifically on, excuse me, dream incubation and the process. Yeah, because it's just I think it's so important people to learn how to seed it. And 
Uh, unfortunately, we have only just about a couple minutes. Uh, we're at, right at the end. Could you briefly, I can't believe we're, we're right here at the end. Um, just to briefly talk, Tom, about uh, your Magicians Without Borders, just a, a, a minute or t at the most. Little. You said a lot in the beginning. I mean, for the last 15 years, we have been traveling around the world, uh, often under the auspices of the UN High Commission for Refugees, going into refugee camps, performing for now, as you said, over a million refugee uh, and orphan children in 37 countries. And our mission is to use the art of magic to entertain, educate, and empower forgotten children. And the educate and empower is we have six groups of children around the world, very, very poor, marginalized kids, like 14 daughters of commercial sex workers in Mumbai. Their moms all work in the brothels. We've been training them using magic, the learning, practicing, and performing of magic to um, awaken their sense of confidence, discipline, focus, self-esteem. And then it seems to awaken the dream that the impossible is possible. And we have this scholarship fund. And one of the girls comes up to me and says, you know, Tom, sir, I've always wanted to be a nurse. So we send her to nursing school, or I've wanted to be a chef. Mm. And somehow the magic makes them uh, have dreams of the impossible. So uh, we have a website, magicianswithoutborders.com. You can go there, see the pictures, and read the stories. Um, That's thank so you. <clears throat> that, Tom, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been such an incredible, I can't believe how fast it went. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's amazing. It is amazing. Please go well, to his website. Well, let's do another show. I would love that. That would be great if you want to. Absolutely, Tom. That would be fan. I would love it. Absolutely. Folks, okay. thank you so much for tuning in. We have had so many people on listening. We've been broadcasting on KUHSDenver.com. That's KUHSDenver.com. Originating music here in Denver and all across the world. The best shows, touching lives all around the world. Thank you so much for tuning into the council. Tune in again in a couple weeks. We have another dynamic show with another guest. Thank you all. <clears throat> May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. God bless. Council is adjourned. We're still on on the international camera. Thank you so all, all for tuning in. Uh, we're just really, really grateful. And uh, we're going to have another great show coming up in two weeks. Tune in to the council. <laughs>